Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the second series of The Human Podcast, a place to hear extraordinary human stories that celebrate the limitless potential of human beings. This second series is dedicated to our very human stories of grief and loss, because when you dig down into the core matter of these experiences, what you actually discover is possibly our most unobserved and uncelebrated capacity for courage, resilience and love. Grief requires an expansiveness of self that stretches us to a fourth dimension. The extraordinary thing is that we can contain it, live with it and that somehow the human heart can hold it all. So if the world is feeling like a dark or difficult place, Join us and let your heart be ignited by the fire of the human spirit. I could not feel luckier today um, to be in conversation with possibly two of my most favourite people in the world. Two people whose pure human decency and commitment to issues of social justice and climate justice have become a torchlight for so many people in what feels like the darkest of times. So Alice Ady is a documentary photographer, filmmaker and activist whose widely published work focuses on forced migration, women's stories and the climate emergency. Jack Harries is a documentary filmmaker and environmental activist who has built an online platform of over 5 million people generating hundreds of millions of views of his incredible documentary films which raise awareness of mental health, forced migration and now very much with a focus on the climate emergency. And together... Alice and Jack are co-founders of Earthrise, a platform dedicated to empowering and galvanising the next generation of climate activists into long-term sustained action. Now, while they're still very much in the early stages of building Earthrise, just within their first year, Alice and Jack have played a central role in putting the climate emergency on the news and political agenda for the first time in the UK. And it's their ongoing work in climate activism that we're going to be discussing today. So as we all know, the challenges that humankind face as a result of the climate crisis are unprecedented. All the science states that unless we act urgently and radically to change the way we're living on Earth, we will speed towards the mass extinction of life on this planet as we know it. Now, coming into true acceptance of the enormity of this is possibly as existentially overwhelming as anything could possibly be. And the consequence of this for many who do involves the onset of a relatively newly recognised but very commonly experienced form of grief called climate grief. 
Now, to introduce this properly, for those listening who may not already be familiar with it, I'd love just to read now a passage from an article by Susie Orbach called Climate Sorrow, where I think she explains it very beautifully. And she says, To come into true knowing about this crisis is to come into sorrow, a sorrow that arrives as a thud, deadening and fearful. Sorrow is hard to bear. With sorrow comes grief and loss, not easy feelings, nor is guilt, nor fury or despair. Climate sorrow opens us up into wretched states of mind and heart, and we can find it unbearable. Without meaning to repress our feelings, we do so. I am doing so now as I write this. Staying with such feelings can be bruising and can make us feel helpless and despairing. It's hard, very, very hard to stay with, and yet there is such value in this if we can create context for doing so. Facing feelings is not a substitute for political action, nor is it a distraction from action. Feelings are an important feature of political activity. Acknowledging our feelings to ourselves, to one another, makes us more robust. We need to mourn and organise. It should not be one or the other. This is an essential part of the resilience building process. Now, Alice and Jack, hello. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> Um, now I know this is something that you have both experienced in a very very real way yourselves in the past couple of years as as you have really stepped into your activism in a very full-time way and I just would love it if we could to start today by you explaining a little bit more about how it's been for you and maybe we start with with you Jack if that's okay maybe it helps to give context to like my journey to what sort of Uh, led me to understanding the climate crisis a bit deeper because I think one of the many issues of the climate crisis is it's a very abstract issue or has been a very abstract issue until this point it's based on complicated graphs and numbers it seems to be happening in faraway places and it's a very difficult thing to to truly wrap your head around and importantly to to feel emotionally you know it's a very Mm. um, technical issue uh, obscured by jargon or has been for a long time and growing up, my mum was a climate activist. She used to go out and drag me and my brother to protests. And so I suppose from early on, I had a sense that this was an important issue, but I never really understood it in a deep way. I don't think I felt passionate about it until uh, a trip in 2015 to Greenland with the WWF. I went to make a documentary about glacial retreat and it was a mind-blowing experience we spent a week um in in greenland and we spent uh one night in particular camping on the yak of salvan glacier which is the most southern tip of greenland and we were there with a, a glaciologist called alan hubbard who'd been studying the ice sheet for 10 years and we spent this night camping and i'll, I'll never forget that night because we were kept awake by the sound of these huge pieces of ice carving off the front of the glacier and falling into the ocean beneath and and we were kept awake by the physical sensation of these pieces falling, like pieces the size of, you know, apartment blocks. And it was the first time I think I had felt what climate change means. I understood the fact that our planet was changing in this very tangible sense. And importantly as well, speaking with Alan, the scientist, and uh, witnessing his grief, I suppose, in a sense, you know, his fear for what was happening and seeing it in his eyes. And it was the first time that the penny dropped, that I got it, that I understood what a significant issue this was. And I think that was a really visceral moment for me. Looking back, it's when it it all changed, really. It turned my world upside down. 
And since then, that was, what was that, five, six years ago, five years ago, I've sort of been um, dedicated to trying to understand the human impact of climate change, because I think that's where the emotional connection happens. That's where we can understand this issue as something that is emotional as well as physical. Um, uh, so, yeah, that's been my last five years. And that was my sort of turning point. Uh, How do you identify with this kind of onset of, of, of grief that we're talking about? How, how has that been for you? I mean, returning back from Greenland those many years ago, can you, can you take yourself back to, to that place? And I think it's been a very slow uh, process of um, really understanding and realising what's, happen, what's happening. And I think that the, the significant part of that was over the last four or five years, I've had the chance to travel to some of the front lines of the climate crisis, be that uh, Somalia during a devastating drought in 2017 to the remote island nation of Kiribati in the South Pacific, which is one of the lowest lying island nations in the world, two metres above sea level. And meeting individuals in these places, the term climate grief took on a whole new meaning because I understood that individuals living on the front lines, and that's particularly in the global south, they are uh, grieving for what is already being lost. People mm. are already dying in these parts of the world. So whilst I've experienced my own form of grief, in a way that's a, a sense of a grief for something that will happen in the future, an anticipation mm. for what's coming down the line. Whereas for people living uh, on the front lines of the climate crisis, that is already an everyday reality. Mm. And that's been something that's really helped me understand the depth of this of this grief meeting individuals who are living on those front lines mm. um so I, I think it's important to draw that distinction you know like in, in the sort of industrialized industrialized countries in the global north it's more of a sort of climate anxiety at this point mm. you know it's not physically happening around us we're, we're reading about it every day we're seeing images we're watching documentaries and it's this profound sense of sort of grief for what will happen this mm. anticipation and there's an amazing um psychotherapist called Caroline Hickman who does a lot of work around climate grief mm. and she talks about this idea of flight or fright you know when we're faced with a, a traumatic situation our human instinct is to either uh, leave the situation get away as fast as we can or fight it and she talks about the fact there's with climate grief there's this particular third one which is freeze so it's flight fright and, and freeze and, and and that's really the case with this issue where we're sort of paralyzed we don't know whether we can fight it or whether we should run in the opposite way and so we're left in this middle ground of just being completely paralyzed i always compare it to like watching a sort of slow motion car crash mm. you, you can't quite take your eyes off it but at the same time you don't really know what to do about it and so i think that's what it's felt like over the last five years for me is this sort of strange um paralyzed feeling of just sort of not knowing how to act and Alice, what, what about you? Um, I really resonate with a lot of what Jack was saying. I think for me, the profound, that shift that we all have to go through to truly engage with climate change and really stare that despair and that grief in the face um, is to go from engaging purely with our head intellectually um, to engaging with it for, from our, with our hearts. Mm. And for me, that journey um, was different to Jack. I, with you, had been very involved with the refugee crisis through Help Refugees, this incredible cause. And I know we shared that sort of sense that once you saw this tragedy or emergency on our doorstep unfolding, you couldn't really look away. And that's really dominated my work for the past few years. Um, I can't say that I ever was particularly engaged with climate change. I 
like so many of us, um, really thought it was this abstract thing that the environment was somehow separate to us as humans, that climate change and biodiversity loss was happening to wildlife, but it didn't really impact our existence. And for me, that kind of awakening, that shift happened when I realised that climate change would actually impact all the social justice issues I cared about. So climate change will cause the biggest mass migration in history. Mm. So the the pain, the suffering that I had been seeing in refugee camps across Europe and the Middle East, um, that was only going to get dramatically worse over the next few years. Uh, I think we currently have around 75 million displaced people and refugees and by 2050 we could have up to 1 billion I mean just that Mm. deserves a moment to really think about it yeah yeah and similarly to Jack you know we started together to go to the front lines of climate change and really engaging with the human impact um the fact that climate is this umbrella issue uh which will only make uh will threaten human rights, will make inequality worse, will cause mass migration. Understanding the human cost for me was a huge, huge wake-up call Um, and I think was really the start of my journey into grief. This very Mm. complicated um, journey of of many different chapters, I guess. You never graduate from what people talk about the five stages of grief mm. um I can't remember what they are I don't know if you denial mm. I, I wrote them down here at the start I I think that's a really profound way to look at mm. what it is to process so beautifully expressed climate yes, grief yeah. so, so the five stages are denial anger bargaining depression and acceptance mm. and if you take a minute to just look at how that plays out around climate change denial mm. that's something we've seen in the media over and over again over the last God, few years so interesting, and it was it? only two years ago that the BBC made it uh, illegal to have a climate denier come on alongside a climate scientist I mean wrap your head around that two years ago they made mm. that piece of policy so we're so used to climate denial and of mm. course the reason we're in this situation in the first place is because of the climate denial by fossil fuel companies you know they've invested billions in confusing the public and misinformation campaigns so that's a huge part of this anger we see that manifesting in the streets with young people, Extinction Rebellion. That's mm. a really physical thing. Bargaining, that's a big thing. So a report came out in 2018 that we've got just 12 years left to make these drastic changes. And we see people, you know, well, maybe it's 20 years, maybe it's 30 years. And that's really what, you know, we've got COP26 next year, which is the 26th climate conference. And all of those COPs have just been about bargaining. How much longer do we think we can get away without acting? You know, it won't so, be that bad, will it? You right. Know, yeah, these. Yeah. So we see that play out in a major way. And then depression. And I think that's a major part of going through the climate grief because I think that's where a lot of people get stuck. And mm. you asked me about my experience for a long time. When I met Alice four years ago, I was stuck on that sort of depression, just that paralysis, that sense of like, there's nothing we can do, I give up, which is another form of denial as well, isn't it? Just, well, there's nothing we can do. And I think that's the hardest one to come through. And if you can work through that, you land on the fifth stage, which is acceptance. Mm. And I think it's once you end up in acceptance that you can start to take action. And Mm. I feel like all of the activism that we've had a chance to get involved in over the last years has come from that place of acceptance. Mm. It's only once you get there that you're then moved to act. You know, and then the challenge then is once you're in this state of acceptance, you know, how you can stay attuned to the severity of the issues without 
without collapsing in the face of them and I and I and I see in the work that both of you are doing that you're developing some very very um powerful tools for yourself to kind of enable that from where I see it that kind of agency to to continue and to thrive even within this this incredibly what can feel an incredibly sort of oppressive um, landscape and I read a quote of yours which said that the the thing about climate is that you can be overwhelmed by the complexity of the problem or you can fall in love with the creativity of the solutions and I just I just love that and you know it just made me think that you know focusing on on solutions is is a very empowering way actually for for people for for us to to enable us i think through the power of purpose actually to to build internal processes of courage and resilience alongside the often very overwhelming feelings of hopelessness and rage and fear um and and despair and um I just would love to hear your, your thoughts on that because I, I think, yeah, that quote so speaks to the power of purpose and actually how, power, how purpose can enable us to still thrive whilst in this kind of, you know, this kind of pressure cooker of other very difficult feelings. I wish we could take credit for that mm. quote. It's, it's one that's kind of a, a North Star for us. It's an amazing um, climate writer called Mary Hegler, but... Um, I just want to I'm just want to go back to the what Jack mentioned about acceptance because actually I'm interested to hear that in the sense that I would say I'm not yet at that place of acceptance and that actually rather than graduating through the five stages of grief you're constantly navigating and meandering and depending on the day I feel that anger and that rage and for me it's a deeply um challenging journey of being able to transform those emotions, that grief into positive action. And there's this one sentence that I love, which is um, action is an antidote to anxiety. And oh, I love that. I, oh, I love it. And it's something that we always talk about in the setting up of Earthrise, this platform communicates in the climate crisis. It's really interesting to look back over the past year because had we done this interview a year ago, I think I would have spoken out of a place of total despair, to be honest. Um, a real profound sense of hopelessness. And a year on, I think I've realized that all we have is hope and we have to cling on to it for dear life. For dear life. Um, and it's a constant conversation we have with Earthrise is how do we talk about what's happening and do justice to the gravity of the climate crisis, the climate emergency that we're in, but also hold on to hope and optimism. Um, we know that the biggest challenge for us in inspiring and activating young people is this feeling of powerlessness, this paralysis that Jack talks about. It's debilitating. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, it's the antithesis to taking action. So we're always navigating how, how is it best to tell stories in the climate space. Psychologists say that um, a constant doomsday apocalyptic perspective just paralyzes us and so we're always trying to find new ways to inspire um and tell human stories i mean it's it's it speaks so directly to you know just the it's just the power of language as well isn't it and mm. it's like you know if you're if you take the kind of analogy or kind of metaphor of somebody who's terminally ill you know hope for them 
you know, if you are terminally ill, is actually the greatest medicine mm. of all. And wow. it's quite often when somebody is told that, you know, all options have run out and there is no hope, that they, they very, very often will die very, very quickly. Um, but, you know, it just shows you that the, the impact of, of, of these belief systems that we create for ourselves are actually things that literally can keep us alive sometimes. I mean, it's that, it's that true, you know, and I think everything that you've just said then is, it just speaks to it so beautifully. And I, um, there's a quote that I wanted to read to you actually, mm. which, which kind of speaks to this. So it, it, this comes from a, a TED talk that I rewatched recently by a, a, an amazing um, American activist called Valerie Kerr, who you may mm, know. No. Um, anyway, I found this a very energizing tonic um, <laughs> to, to bring to this conversation. So she's the founder of something called the Revolutionary Love Project. And the quote was, what if the darkness we are in is not the darkness of the tomb, but the darkness of the womb? And it's time to breathe and push and breathe and push. And this is a very birthy way, <laughs> a very birthy <laughs> metaphor. But I just loved it. I loved it because it just put a completely different perspective on, you know, actually what are the darkest of times in lots of ways at the moment. But what if we are just at the moment of rebirth? And I think that's such, it's just such wow. a kind of powerful way of embodying that. And I just love to kind of know your, just to hear your, hear you reflect on that. I love that so much and I feel like that's the transition we've made this year is to see it that way. Mm. I think to have hope in the face of this issue is a sort of revolutionary act mm. and one of our favourite podcasts that we listen to a lot is called Outrage. Human. Besides <laughs> human, obviously. That it's called human. goes without saying subscribe Jack. now. Rookie um, error. Specifically about the climate Jack. crisis <laughs> yeah. is um, Outrage and Optimism is the name mm. of the podcast. And it's by Christiana Figueres and Tom Rivet Karnak, who are two of the architects of the Paris Climate Agreement. Uh, wow. There are climate crushes, you could say. Ooh, sexy. <laughs> um, and they, that podcast is all about um, balancing the two. You know, Christiana talks about the fact that we should be outraged, but we mm. also have to have optimism. And I think that's a really, really powerful sentiment. That acceptance is accepting that there's going to be a tough road ahead. We can't ignore that. Things are going to get a lot worse before they get better. But the optimism comes from seeing this as an opportunity mm. to rethink a lot of the things that aren't working. And that's not just environmentally, that's socially as well. This is a chance to to stop for a minute. And really that's happened this year with the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm. It feels as though a little like people have sort of paused and we're, we're looking, we're sort of looking back and we're like, is this working? You know, mm. and we know that we live in a society that doesn't work for most people. It works for the few and not the many. And so I think, you know, tackling climate change should be seen as an opportunity to tackle the climate crisis whilst creating a fairer planet for, for everyone, you know, for people and planet. Uh, and, and that's where, you know, ideas like the Green New Deal come in, mm. which is a big thing in the United States and something we've started talking about here in the UK. Would you just tell us a little bit more about that for listeners that maybe aren't aware of? Yeah, the that? Green New Deal is still in very early stages, but essentially it's a, a piece of policy to tackle the climate crisis whilst creating a fairer uh, society for all. So it's looking at, at tackling climate change as an opportunity to create a ton of new jobs to sort of totally um, rethink our infrastructures and our society in a way that benefits people, you know, um, 
Um, and I, I, I think that it's it's a beautiful framework to look at tackling the climate crisis. Mm-hmm. You know, if we're going to, scientists tell us that we have to dr- uh, drastically transform all aspects of society in the next 10 years in order to avoid catastrophic climate change, right? That is an overwhelming idea, but it's also an opportunity. Mm. We have to change our energy infrastructure. We have to change our transport infrastructure. That in itself will create a ton of new jobs. And the Green New Deal is about ensuring that workers who are currently in high carbon sectors, like, for example, uh, the fossil fuel industry, are supported in transitioning to low carbon industries. So it's not about, you know, we need to transition and leave people behind. And I think that's often where the fear comes with people like Extinction Rebellion out in the streets. It's like, what does this mean for me? You know, how are we going to transform society and how does this benefit me and the green new deal is about framing it in a way where it works for people people are uh, it's a just transition we talk about this a lot a just transition because one of the things you have to think about is you know the global north have, have benefited for uh, years from fossil fuels that's what's allowed us to industrialize and so the idea of turning around to the, to the global south and saying well we can no longer burn fossil fuels tough luck you know we've got a transition now no more growth that's that's fundamentally unjust and so the green new deal is about making this transition in a way that that works for everyone and acknowledging the the inequalities right climate change doesn't affect us all equally that's mm. the fundamental thing and, and so and that, that's just to sort of circle that back around to what we we're talking about at the start i think that's the big shift when it comes to climate change as alice was saying is not just seeing it purely as an environmental issue mm. climate change is an issue of social justice mm. and, and human rights and i think it's only when we make that transition that we can start to emotionally process it and enter through that sort of process of grief which i think is necessary in order to tackle it Sorry, I was a rant, wasn't it? No. Yeah, get it carried away sometimes. <laughs> Jesus Christ. It's only Monday morning. It's very, very, very good. Um, can I just go back to your birthing metaphor, please? Yes, please Because I think it touches on something really important that we spoke about recently about um, inviting in the feminine. Mm. And for me, I would say my process of grief has been a deeply humbling experience in the sense that it's been a process of interrogating everything we know um really understanding the extent to which as jack has touched on we live in broken systems unlearning these stories these narratives that we've grown up with that i'm coming to understand are really a fallacy stories like um development equals progress Mm. growth at any cost wealth equals happiness these stories are unraveling I think for all of us I'm not alone I think that's where a lot of the anger and rage comes for young people is that we feel a sense that this has all been a lie Mm. our parents generations grew up I think with an optimism for the future um if you asked young people a few decades ago I'm sure they spoke about um a sort of utopian future of flying cars and if you ask young people now about their future, I think they have a profound sense that things are not right, Mm. that we're not necessarily going towards a brighter and better future. And I think that is really terrifying. So I'll take it further and say they have a nihilistic and dystopian view of the future. Yeah. That's really, really tough to be a young person who feels like that. Yeah, And I suppose you know what you guys are doing with with earthrise so beautifully is how you marry that very very real world not just world view but kind of living experience that young people have with trying to inspire this sense of of agency 
still and I think I think feeling agent is also a, a huge part of what enables a person to live alongside you know matters of grief you know and it all comes back again to stuff around around purpose and agency and and the kind of optimism that that can breed and I and I see that so much in the work that you're doing and then I but then you, you go one step further and you think actually though you know is it about having this binary position between optimism and and, and pe- pessimism you know maybe what we need now is just which is really what you both are saying is just an ability just to hold the realism of what is difficult mm. and uncomfortable and hopeless and still find the courage to move forward and that's quite difficult to sit with but I think you know going back to your your kind of beautiful outlying of the five stages of of, of grief Jack I think maybe that's the one on the other side it's just like acceptance and absolute wholesale realism and just being with what is bad and that not being the end destination just letting it coexist with the other stuff and that is it's uncomfortable Climate grief is an extra complication because we feel guilty. There's guilt in there too, mm. right? We're all complicit. Tell within, me, tell me about this. Well, we're all complicit within this, and the narrative that we have been fed over our entire lifetime certainly is that climate change is our fault. Climate change is your fault. Something I learned recently, which blew my mind, was that the idea of a carbon footprint was created by BP. So the oil company created that concept to turn it back on us and say, well, it's about you managing your carbon footprint. And I think this is the narrative that has been perpetuated for the last 20, 30 years, which is so beneficial for large corporations and governments that it's your fault and therefore you have to change your life. And what stopped people from speaking out is this fear of hypocrisy, right? Mm. And I've had, I've faced that. We've all faced that. Well, but don't you get on a plane? I mean, there was that horrendous interview, Piers Morgan interviewing an Extinction Rebellion activist where he just kept saying, but do you have a TV? But do you have a TV? Like, what that is so besides the point and the 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 risk of it is it's it's causes us all to point fingers at each other and what we really need to be doing in a lot of our work on Earthrise is like yes we have to make individual changes but there's another thing we don't talk about which is systemic change and we have to come together to demand that systemic change to create a society where we can live in a carbon-free way you know where it's easier to do so if it's more expensive and, and it's more inconvenient, it's never going to happen. So we have to put the pressure for the for the systems to be put in place so that we can make the changes required. So I just wanted to talk about that sort of guilt element. And I also wanted to just go back on what you were saying about purpose as well, because I think mm-hmm. that's such a profound point. And, you know, people often talk about climate activism or being a climate activist as a sort of noble, selfless thing. Mm-hmm. And like, personally, I think it's it's the most selfish thing I could do in the sense that it gives me so much purpose. Mm. I don't wake up and think, God, I've got to fight this day today. I've got to fight this battle today. It's the thing that gets me out of bed. It's where I found my purpose. Mm. In that sense, there's a selfishness about it. And I always try and communicate that to other people because I think we are a generation of people searching for purpose. Mm. We are disconnected. And that's a whole other part of you know, what's led us to this point. We have a profound disconnection with nature, with each other. Social media has exacerbated that and we're searching for a sense of purpose. And I think I have found that through climate activism, through thinking about how we build a new world. And I I just think there's such an opportunity. There's an army of people out there searching for purpose. And if we can align that with tackling the climate crisis, then we've got a real shot at tackling this thing. And this, I mean, honestly, once you find purpose in your life, it is it is just the greatest gift mm. in the world and often it does come out uh, out of the most difficult 
circumstances. You know, um, I had another little phrase that I heard yesterday, which I loved, which was a um, post-traumatic growth. Mm. Wow. And I think that's a really, really good one, which again speaks to so many of the kind of micro or macro things that we've just been discussing. But um, I think it all comes to the same thing that, you know, so often out of the most extraordinarily difficult things, you know, we, we discover the most limitless innate ability to grow and to transcend the limits of what we thought were possible for ourselves and for each other and you know i i i i hear that so much in what you're saying and and the beauty is is that you are you know by example you know offering that gift to the other people that are joining you in, in earthrise and the other work that you're doing it's 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 so so important Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. So another thing that comes up often in relation to grief is this thing uh, around around gratitude and mm. and I and I feel really strongly that it should never be rendered a cliche because I think there for me certainly in my own personal experiences of, of of grief gratitude is is this certain flip side to grief it's absolutely the night and day of it um because I think you know whilst grief represents everything that isn't gratitude represents everything that is and um I think it's such a helpful tool and um quite often language can buckle into the inexpressible so people end up just relying on platitudes and I I always feel quite resistant when someone may say that gratitude is one of those things because I really I know from personal experience how truly truly in a second gratitude can transform a transform a, a feeling of very very real downward howling sadness into sudden buoyancy and and presence and sense of possibility again and I just was wondering you know for you in in relation to this to this this huge thing of of climate grief what what enables you to feel gratitude amongst all of the very overwhelming difficult parts of it I feel like you should speak to this a little bit because I feel like I've seen you over the last few months really honest gratitude I don't know what you mean but you can explain (laughs) in a minute but what I was going to say is that I think the way that I found gratitude is actually by sharing my grief and my grief has been shared with Mm -hmm. Jack and we've had each other um 
hours, hours of conversations about this and how to navigate the emotions and the really dark days where we didn't feel any purpose whatsoever and now setting up Earthrise together, it's really the inevitable end of like a very challenging um, journey. In, in terms of dealing with climate grief, com- communicating is, is the key thing. And I, I think, you know, over the last few years, we've been involved with Extinction Rebellion in a big way. And for me, finding that community was a huge catharsis. Mm. I think another thing that makes climate grief worse is the idea that you're the only one who feels like this. Mm. It's quite an insular feeling. And especially if you chat to a friend and you say, you know, are you processing this? We've got 12 years left. And a friend's like, what are you on about? Mm. It makes you feel even worse because you feel lonely in that feeling of grief and finding a community who understand how you feel to share your thoughts with, for me, has been a huge catharsis. And I found that in activist groups like Extinction Rebellion. I found that in Alice, even today in what we're doing here. Mm. Like, thank you for creating this space. It's a catharsis, you know, this is the work just to talk about it and to make space for it. Mm. So I wanted to pick up on that. But in terms of um, gratitude and what I was sort of referring to is I feel like over the last few months, Alice and I have started to learn just a little bit more about um indigenous cultures and and I feel like we have so much more to learn but but through that journey I feel like that has given us a real sense of gratitude and it's hard to 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 talk about it without sounding a little bit cliche but a gratitude to nature Mm. and and for, for 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 the life force that is nature that comes through everything and when you look at indigenous cultures and you speak with an an indigenous person you realize that that is a gratitude that is baked into the core of their culture Mm. that has always been there and it starts to make you wonder where did we lose that because I think we had that of course we had it we used to rely on the land on a daily basis and we have old cultures here in the UK like animism which was you know a sort of religion that uh, involved sort of deifying elements of nature where did that go and at what point did we forget that because I think that's what's led us it's kind of alienation point. really yeah alienation yeah it's mm. this other this other thing that we are not a part of and so we've both been trying to practice this gratitude for nature and for, 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 for what it is and for the fact that we are a tiny part of it and it is absolutely in control you know it we are not um in charge of nature nature is very much in charge of us and there's something quite humbling about that and I think climate change is sort of um uh, showing that in a very physical way you know mm. nature is the sort of all, all all powerful being when i mentioned before that my journey with grief I, th- I think has been about has been very humbling and has been about interrogating um the systems that govern us and where we've gone wrong it's it's that acceptance that we did take a wrong path and it's been generations of Um, stories and thinking that are so pervasive so insidious that we don't even realize they're there and a big part of that I think is that disconnection from nature we've built our society in the west in the global north on this idea that we are somehow separate to or masters of nature we've Mm. built concrete jungle we have created so much distance from this life force that um, you know runs through all of us runs through every living thing every tree Um, and we are suffering as a result we are sick as a result I think we forgot nature and that has made us disconnected from her but also disconnected from ourselves so there's so much to be gained from learning about 
um, different ways of thinking, different ways of building societies. And that's where we're now, um, you know, reaching to indigenous wisdom, which has always been there. We just haven't listened. And, you know, to be careful in doing that, because I think we can't then in our desperation for answers now just, you know, ex yeah, in an extractive way, um, reach for that indigenous wis wisdom, but to truly learn and engage with um, how they live and their reverence and their respect for nature. Now, part of what I really want to do in in throughout the course of this series is to build, is to is to start to build out a rich tapestry of language for this thing called grief that um, too often mainstream language can just buckle within. And um, you know, every now and again, you hear someone else express the thing which you have been through with a language that somehow enables you to understand your experience a little bit more and um what i would love is to see um you know to ask you both you know th throughout throughout this journey that you've been on ha has there been the words of another you know or whether it be a piece of art or some form of expression that for you has managed to articulate this thing in a way that has not only made you feel more understood within it but has somehow kind of deepened your understanding of 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 what it is to grieve in this way i have got a piece of writing which is from a letter from an, a female indigenous leader called Namonte Nanquimo and she was recently on the front cover of Time as Time 100's oh, most influential people which was just Amazing. incredible um, and this is a letter she's written directly to the western world I guess and published on The Guardian and I just think it's so fascinating to as we interrogate um, the way our world is and our society is how indigenous people their understanding of where we've gone wrong mm. um and to understand the world from their perspective i think is really really interesting mm. so i'll read part of it in each of our many hundreds of different languages across the amazon we have a word for you the outsider the stranger in my language wow tededo that word is kawori and it doesn't need to be a bad word, but you have made it so. For us, the word has come to mean, and in a terrible way, your society has come to represent, the white man that knows too little for the power that he wields and the damage that he causes. You are probably not used to an indigenous woman calling you ignorant, and less so on a platform such as this. But for indigenous peoples, it is clear, the less you know about something, the less value it has to you, and the easier it is to destroy. And by easy, I mean guiltlessly, remorselessly, foolishly, even righteously. And this is exactly what you are doing to us as indigenous peoples, to our rainforest territories, and ultimately to our planet's climate. It took us thousands of years to get to know the Amazon rainforest, to understand her ways, her secrets, to learn how to survive and thrive with her. And for my people, the Waorani, we have only known you for 70 years. We were connected in the 1950s by American evangelical missionaries, but we are fast learners and you are not as complex as the rainforest. You forced your civilization upon us and now look where we are. Global pandemic, climate crisis, species extinction, and driving it all, 
widespread spiritual poverty. In all these years of taking, taking, taking from our lands, you have not had the courage or the curiosity or the respect to get to know us, to understand how we see and think and feel and what we know about life on this earth. Wow. As we reconnect with nature and fall in love with nature again, there is so much to be gained, I think. And I think that is really, really beautiful. And we mentioned kind of... Ancient and timeless wisdom. Yeah. Mm. That needs to be returned to, basically, Mm. the blueprint right there. Truths that we've known Mm. all along that we've just ignored or not listened to. Mm. Um, And that is kind of inviting in the feminine and it's in that is acknowledging where we've gone wrong and that's difficult. It's difficult to Mm. acknowledge our mistakes, where we've gone wrong, that we didn't want to inherit this earth, that we want it to be different, that it's unjust, um, that we are complicit, that we're hypocrites. None of that is easy to reckon with, but it's so, so important. Mm. And let's really give it the time and the weight it deserves because I think we owe that to future generations. Hi, just like that. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, uh, we'll uh, wrap it up there. What's yeah, your piece of writing? Jack. <laughs> <laughs> You're Gosh, next, mate. <laughs> mine pales in comparison. It's, um, it's a much shorter quote, mine, um, but it's something that has helped me through my darkest times my moments of despair Mm. and grieving and it's something that my mum would always say to me and it's a really simple quote uh, by Margaret Mead who's a social anthropologist and she says never doubt that a small group of thoughtful committed citizens can change the world indeed it is the only thing that ever has and it's so simple but to me it's just a reminder that the change is within us Mm. and by coming together we can start to make that change happen and it's helped me through so many dark moments so I wanted to share that out oh god oh Jack that's so what a perfect way to end this most special time (laughs) (laughs) now in 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 true tradition for for this podcast every episode we ask our guests um to dedicate our conversation and their story to a song to play us out so alice and jack what song would you like to to choose for us today you have me to put it forward. yeah definitely. Okay. um so our song is by a dear friend of ours called nick mulvey um he's someone we've developed a strong friendship with over the last few years and his music has seen us through so many things and has really been the sort of anthem to our relationship in a strange way one of our first dates was going to his gig (laughs) (laughs) tell us more tell us more but gory details gory details (laughs) this putting that aside putting the romance aside this song in particular um it's called begin again and it's about renewal and it's about starting over and i feel like it just perfectly captures everything we've discussed we love you you. thank you so much for being here with us so everybody here's Nick Mulvey and begin again Mary was my mother's mother and my sister too there's rain in the river there's a river running through to the sea around these islands crying tears of sorrow pain There's rain in the river, there's a river in my veins Mary, young as we may be, you know The blood in you and me is as old as blood can be Is as old as blood can be
living lines of memory drew the markings on my hand ancient lines of living love awaken in this land saying i am in the forest in the city and the field i am in the bounty come on know me as i yield i am in the falcon in the otter and the snow i am in the turtle dove with nowhere left to go in the moment of blind madness when he's pushing her away i am in the lover and in the ear who hears her say can we begin again oh baby it's me again i know you are so different to me but i love you just the Thank you all so much for listening. If you'd like to rate, review and subscribe to us on your podcast app, then please do. And you know the score, five stars, please. If you'd like to come and say hello on Instagram, then you can find me and all things human podcast related at This Is Jess Mills. This podcast was created and hosted by me, Jess Mills, with creative co-production by Bonnie Tyburn and produced by Joel Porter at dot dot dot. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.